I love Scott. Before I get started, I just want to let you guys know how privileged you are to get to have Scott as a pastor of this church. He's, he's one of the most kind, uh, humble people that I've ever met. He loves the Lord. He loves you guys. He prays for you guys. And that's, that's a real blessing. So know how blessed you are by God to have uh, Scott as a pastor at this church. This morning, we're going to be preaching from God's Word. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 32. To get us started, I want to read our entire passage together, and then we're going to walk through it and break it down piece by piece. So if you will turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 32, should be somewhere fairly close to the middle. Psalm 32, and if you are able, if you will stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, I would appreciate that. If you don't have a Bible of your own, Please feel free to take one of the Bibles in the pews and take that home with you. We here at this church and at the Calvary Family of Churches, we strongly believe in the power of the Word of God. And so if you don't have a Bible, we would love to get one to you. All right, let's read together. Psalm 32. I'm going to read the entire passage for us. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You may be seated. Let's pray together one more time before we dive into this. Our great, glorious, heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are and all you've done for us. As we sang together this morning, you are so great. We thank you for this passage here before us today. We pray that as I speak, I will speak the truth of your word and that the power of your word through your Holy Spirit would work in each of our hearts as we go through this passage together. May you be glorified in all that we do, in what I say from your words, in how we listen, in how we understand. May we know more of you and grow to love you more because of all that you have done for us, how you have blessed us in Christ Jesus by allowing for the forgiveness of our sins and even more than that, by declaring us righteous in your son, Jesus Christ. 
It's in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? That's the first word of our passage here before us today. And we're going to use it as our guiding theme as we look at what the Spirit of God has to teach us from his word. The entire book of Psalms actually starts with that word blessed. In Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Here again in chapter 32, for the first time since Psalm 1, we see a chapter start with that word blessed. So I ask again, what does it mean to be blessed? Do you consider yourself to be blessed? I went in the past year, I've had three opportunities to travel to Liberia uh, with an organization called Training Leaders International and to teach with them a group of pastors. When I was there this past December, we were teaching a course on understanding and communicating biblical poetry and we're specifically looking at the book of Psalms. One of the Psalms that we looked through in detail with the class was Psalm th- chapter 32. It was so helpful for me to discuss with the students what it meant to be blessed. Often they asked me to pray for them and asked that I would pray that they would be blessed, that their families would be blessed, and that blessings would come upon them. Liberia is a country caught in some of the most extreme poverty in all of the world. On the list of the most poor nations of the world, it's always at the very bottom or second to the bottom. It's poverty that I can hardly even describe to you. And uh, their lives there are incredibly hard. Adding insult to injury, the false teaching of the prosperity gospel is rampant in Africa. So false teachers come and say that if you become a Christian, you will be healthy and wealthy and have all of your desires met and fulfilled. The week that I was there in December actually coincided with a national conference for one of the biggest prosperity gospel churches in Africa. It's called Living Faith Church Worldwide. It actually started in Nigeria, but in Liberia, all of the churches are called Winner's Chapel. Winner's Chapel. So come here and you'll be a winner. There's actually a Winner's Chapel building directly next to the compound where we were staying while we were teaching. And the week that I was there coincided with the national conference. So each morning at 4 a.m., because there's a three-hour time difference between Nigeria and Liberia, at 4 a.m. you would start hearing the preaching over the loud speakers. And there were people at this conference, there were over 300,000 people in attendance in Nigeria and hundreds of thousands more listening around the globe tuned in to hear the preaching of the church founder, David Oyedepo. Mr. Oyedepo is often ranked as uh, one of the richest pastors in all of the world. He usually falls about second, somewhere in between Kenneth Copeland and Joel Olstein. He has an estimated worth of somewhere between $150 million and $200 million. As I woke up each morning to the sound of his preaching, the one clear theme that came through was that God wants all Christians to be successful and blessed. What do you think Mr. Oyedepo means when he speaks of being blessed? How does that sound to the Liberians who are hearing it who have almost nothing? Nothing. 
It is clear that in Scripture God does want us to be blessed. But I think we will see today that David, the author of Psalm 32, has a very different picture of what it means to be blessed. Of what we think it means to be blessed, about what the prosperity gospels preachers in Africa teach about what it means to be blessed. Let's look at this word blessed and what it means. Grammatically, in the Hebrew, the word blessed is actually used as an interjection. It's almost like David is shouting it as he starts here. The people that I'm about to describe to you, they are blessed. If it, uh, it describes and technically means true deep happiness or supreme happiness, uh, a real and deep happiness in all of life. Being, being an interjection like that, if it was instead of being written by King David or one of his scribes on a scroll, if it was sent in a text message by one of my teenage daughters, it would probably be included with about a dozen exclamation points and a couple funny emojis and maybe a gif of a very happy monkey or something. So that's, that's the concept. Very deeply, truly happy in life. So what brings us this true blessedness and deep happiness? Is it a couple hundred million dollars? Maybe a private jet or two? There are many things that I count in my life as blessings. I have a beautiful wife that I love more than anything in this world, three wonderful daughters, a church family that I love, friends at Tenant, people like Scott that are deep blessings for me. Even more practical things. I love a good cheeseburger. I was driving one of our students from Tenant home yesterday and she'd never been to In-N-Out before. And I took her to In-N-Out for the first time. And she was pretty happy when she bit into that cheeseburger. We have a lot of blessings to be thankful for. A home to live in, food to eat, this country where we live. Lots of things that are temporal blessings. But through the Holy Spirit, Working through his word, I want us to look at what David is trying to communicate to us when he says blessed. I think it's something much more substantial and foundational to true happiness and blessedness in this life. That's what we're going to dwell on this morning. How truly blessed we are that we are forgiven. And how truly blessed that we are that we are counted righteous. These are blessings that we can hold on to no matter what suffering and trials we face in this life. And as you guys know all too well, we will face suffering and trials in this life. So those are going to be our two points as we walk through this passage today. First, that we're blessed to be forgiven. And second, that we're blessed to be counted righteous. For each point, we will look at what the text tells us about being forgiven and being righteous, and then what it instructs us to do. Before we dive into that, I want to briefly comment on the type of psalm that Psalm 32 is. Often in theological studies, we like to categorize things in the Bible. And if you look at different commentators on the book of Psalms, Psalm 32 actually falls into a bunch of different categories. Some people will say it is a penitential psalm or a psalm of confession. And yes, it is. Others will say it is a psalm of thanksgiving. And yes, it is. And others will say it's a psalm of instruction or of wisdom. And that's one of the things that I love about Psalm 32 is it has 
all of those aspects in it. It's not important for us to say it fits into the one of the categories that we've made up, but to see all of the truth that God intends for us to get out of it. It begins by declaring that we are blessed because we're forgiven. Verses 3 through 5 focus heavily on confessing sin. Verses 6 and 7 are instruction from the psalmist to pray and to cry out to God. Verses 8 and 9 uh, jump into the mix and you have instruction straight from God to his people on how they ought to live. Then it continues with a very communal and public call to joyfully worship God for what what he has done for us. As we study through these words from Scripture this morning, may we be instructed and God wants us to learn and perceive to the truth of the way we are so truly blessed to be forgiven. May we learn the importance of the Christian life and of confession and of obedience to God and his word. May we see that our only hope for righteousness comes from being counted righteous by God. And may we be driven to joyfully and passionately worship our great God for all that he has done for us. Look at the text with me in verses 1 and 2. This will be the basis for our first point. We are blessed to be forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. As we studied poetry in Liberia, we looked at this book of Psalms as poetry. It is written as Hebrew poetry. And in Hebrew poetry, these first couple verses are what we call a poetic set. In English poetry, we're often trained to look for words that rhyme or sound the same. That's not how Hebrew poetry is set up. One of the things that they use in Hebrew poetry is those poetic sets where similar ideas are communicated and repeated in sets. And so we're going to look at a couple of these sets in verses 1 and 2. And so you see this pattern. Look at the start of verse 1. Blessed is the one. Start of verse 2. Blessed is the man. So you see it's setting up this set. We're going to look at it twice. And then each verse tells us two things about the blessed person. They seem to be repetitive or maybe even saying the same thing, but it's a tool utilized by the Hebrew authors to communicate something for us and to paint us a clear, vivid picture of what does it mean to be blessed. The first poetic set in verses 1 and 2, we see sin referred to with three different words and then three different things that happen to our sin. To understand why we are blessed to be forgiven, we must first begin by understanding the true depth of our depravity and our need for forgiveness. Look at each pair and and we'll get get a more full picture of how we are blessed to be forgiven. First, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. We'll key in on those two words, transgression and forgiven. What's used in the Hebrew word that's translated as transgression, it wants to communicate a willful rebellion against God. Often when we talk about our sin, it's almost like we want to soften it and, and make it seem like it's not as close to us. Say, yeah, we know original sin came down from Adam through our parents to us. 
But no, this trans, word transgression implies it's a willful rebellion. It is our sin. It is ours. We, we like to pretend that maybe our transgression is eh, it's just a little mistake. Oopsie, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. My bad, I did what I wasn't supposed to do. It's not at all what the word transgression implies. It conveys the fact that we willfully and deliberately rebel against the God of the universe. So that's transgression. Now let's look at the word forgiven. The word for forgiven here literally means lifted up. The full weight of our transgression is lifted up off of us. And really here, I think David is also trying to point us back to the day of atonement set up for the nation of Israel where the sins of the people were lifted up off of them and placed onto a scapegoat and carried away. When I picture this in my head, I think of the character Christian from John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, if you're familiar with that. Christian is this character in John Bunyan's allegory, and he's carrying on his back this pack that is weighing him down, this burden of sin. And then he comes to the cross, and it's lifted off of him. Listen, listen here in some English poetry for us so it rhymes how John Bunyan describes when Christian comes to the cross and his burden is lifted off his back. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this. Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Indeed, we are blessed and start to see the beginning of our bliss, the word that Bunyan used, our true happiness when the burden of the transgression is lifted off our backs. Let's look at the next set of words in this poetic set. It says, our sin, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Again, we're going to focus on the two words, sin and covered. The specific word that's translated here as sin carries the meaning of law-breaking or, or turning away from the true path of God. We know God's law and what it requires of us, but we turn away from his perfect law to our own path. We do what is right in our own eyes. The word covered here means what it says. Our sins have been removed from God's sight. They are blotted out so that he no longer looks upon them. When I hear that, I think of Isaiah 61 Verse 10 it says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. <laughs> Truly we are blessed to be able to rejoice that all of our sins, all of our law-breaking, all of our turning away from God has been covered by the robe of righteousness. We're going to come back to that point and the theme of righteousness as our second point. So hold on to that a minute. I don't want to get it carried away too fast. But that's the picture of covered. We are covered 
in righteousness. We are in our law breaking in our sin, but we are covered in righteousness. Now let's look at the third set, the third part of the set. We see that blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So you guys are seeing a pattern here in this set. We've got two words. We've got counts or does not count and iniquity. So we're going to look at those two, iniquity and counts. The word that's translated iniquity encompasses perversion, twisted ways, evil, distortion, disrespect for God and his holiness and his purity. Not only are we in rebellion against God in our transgression and straying from his prescribed path in our sin, we are now twisting and distorting and perverting what God has said. When I think of perversion, I think of what the Apostle Paul describes when he's describing our our iniquity in Romans chapter 1. This is what he said. He said, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's a pretty nasty list. And that's that's what's lined up against all of us is that list. But what does it say about that list of our iniquities? What does the psalmist say? God does not count it against us. This is like an accounting ledger. We've racked up all kinds of evil charges. But God does not count them. Our ledger is wiped clean. If you've ever been crushed under the weight of a huge financial debt, you know the the happiness and the relief that comes when your debt has been cleared. The bank counts no more debt against you. How much more? Should we be happy and blessed that the Lord counts not that whole list of iniquities against us? David starts out this psalm by exclaiming how blessed we are to be forgiven. That's our first point. We are blessed to be forgiven. So then what do we do? Look at verses 3 through 5. David's going to share his own personal experience. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We know clearly from the context of David's most famous confession in Psalm 51 that it has to do with his sin with Bathsheba when the prophet Nathan confronts him. We're not given the same clarity about the context of Psalm 32, but as I studied this and read different commentators and theologians, I became very convinced that it's David talking about this same grievous sin in his life. I really think it's him talking about it when he's a little farther removed. Psalm 51 is immediately after Nathan confronts David with his sin with Bathsheba, and I think Psalm 32 is probably written by David sometime later where he's a little bit farther away from the sin and he can talk about it and use his example in his life as any good teacher does 
to teach and to encourage his people. I believe that the, the primary focus of David giving this example and his subsequent call for others to confess is, is that he wants people who already believe in God to confess of their sin. I want to be cl clear on this point. I don't think in Psalm 32, David is talking about a conversion experience where he was not a follower of God and then became a follower of God. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about this sin with Bathsheba, where he committed adultery with Bathsheba, was caught in it, tried to cover it up by killing her husband. So it's a sin that David had been walking with God, and it's a sin he committed in his Christian life as a believer and a follower of God. So I think that's what that is primarily talking about here. And so that's what I want to talk to you about. If you are a Christian and you are in Christ, we continue to fail and we continue to commit sins and are called to confess the sins so that we may be forgiven. But I don't want to exclude you if you are not in Christ, if you have not believed in Christ as your Savior. There is a call for you to come to Christ, to be forgiven of your sins. You, like King David, like every one of us in this church, has that list of iniquities and sins and transgressions against us, but you can be forgiven if you come to Christ. But I also want to be clear here that what David is talking about is confession in the life of a believer. What does it look like for us to confess our sins after we've already come to Christ? We need to continue to confess our sins. And I think David wants to show us what confession looks like in the life of a believer. We clearly see the physical and emotional agony that David describes in verses 3 and 4. Look at the language he uses. Bones wasted away, groaning all day long, hand heavy upon me, strength dried up by the heat of summer. I think all of this fits quite well with the torment of conscience that David must have been under between his initial sin with Bathsheba and the time that he was confronted by Nathan. One thing that I want to be crystal clear about here is David did not lose his salvation because of his sin with Bathsheba and, and somehow because of his great confession claw or climb his way back into God's favor. No, his transgression was forgiven. His sin was covered. His iniquity was not counted against him. This is where David starts the psalm. This is where he is at the beginning, not where he earns his way back to through this confession. It's his eternal status is forgiven. Once we are saved, we are secure in our salvation. Our status and our standing with God is secured by Christ, not by us and our performance. Our status as forgiven is fixed. But that doesn't mean that our earthly circumstances are not greatly impacted by sin. And that is what we see here. David's sin does have consequences that he lives through. But he is never removed from his position of being forgiven. God so deeply loves David as his child 
that he disciplines him in order to restore him to earthly fellowship and communion with himself. So that's that contrast we're seeing. David's talking about his bones wasting away when he doesn't cry out and he doesn't confess. He's not saying he lost his salvation. He's saying his life is miserable on earth because of his unconfessed sin. The chapter in the London Baptist Confession on Justification I think states this really clearly for us, what our status is when we are justified, but how sin impacts our lives. Listen to this. God continues to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And in that condition, they usually do not have the light of his countenance restored to them until they humble themselves, beg pardon, and renew their faith with repentance. So in the Christian life, as we sin, we don't lose our salvation. But we are called to continue to repent of those sins so that we may stay in fellowship and happy, blessed communion with our God. We know from Hebrews 12 that God disciplines those that he loves. This is our Heavenly Father, that guilt, that conscience that you feel is your Heavenly Father disciplining those who are already justified so that may be protected and prevented in this life and brought back into right fellowship with Him. Look back at our text in verse 5. David acknowledges his sin to God, not to another man, but to God. He takes it to God whom he has sinned against. John Calvin puts it like this. God is the true physician. Let us show him our wounds. He is the one who has been offended and injured. So let us ask him for mercy and peace. He is the one who knows hearts and sees every thought. Let us open our hearts to him. We don't confess because God doesn't know and we need to tell him what we did. We confess because we need to acknowledge what he knows and what we have been trying to hide that has broken our fellowship and caused consequences in our lives. Picking up again in verse 5, he stops covering his iniquity. He confesses his specific transgressions to the Lord. And what does it say there at the end of verse 5? I love this. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Once David acknowledges his sin and confesses, God forgives him immediately. There is no probation or waiting, period. The consequences of sin are there, but the forgiveness from God is not withheld. We know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Looking now to verses 6 and 7. David turns from recounting his personal experience and exhorts the people of God to cry out to him. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. He urges his people to reach out to God in confession so they might be restored to right fellowship with him. Regular confession of sin is one of the most vital parts of the Christian life. Don't neglect to confess your sins and let the great waters keep you from sweet fellowship with your Father. 
There are consequences to our sin, and there are real consequences if we do not confess our sins. I want to be careful with this, um, because I think a lot of us have experienced depression and despair. And there's all kinds of things that can cause depression and despair. And it's not always unconfessed sin. But unconfessed sin and a broken earthly fellowship with God because of that sin is something that can lead us to depression and despair. So if you are feeling in despair and like you're stuck there, pray to God and ask that he will reveal to you your sin and confess it to him and know that there is forgiveness. That doesn't necessarily fix everything right away. It's not some silver bullet. But being blessed, being truly happy in the things that matter comes to us when we confess and when we know that we are forgiven by our heavenly Father. And in verse 7, we see David reflect on how good it is to be in right fellowship with God as we walk through this troubled life. Look at it. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Listen to the language that David uses. Oh, how good it is that God is our hiding place. When we confess, we are brought back into that close, intimate fellowship with him. Confessing keeps us near to God in a place of safety and security. Think how much pain and suffering in this life we are spared when God's hand of discipline delivers us from the dangerous paths that we wander on and brings us back into close fellowship with him. Praise be to God that our status as forgiven is secure and that our circumstances are immediately improved with confession. We can thrive in truly happy fellowship with God when we humble ourselves and turn to him in confession. So first we saw that we are blessed to be forgiven, and then we are called to continue to confess our sins. Now we turn to our next point. We are blessed to be counted righteous. Blessed to be counted righteous. The forgiveness of our sins is quite clear in this passage. It's repeated multiple times in multiple ways in that poetic set. But we're going to have to look a little more closely to see how we are blessed to be counted righteous. Look back in the text at verse 2. At the end of verse 2, it says, In whose spirit there is no deceit. Is this forgiveness for David because he's such a great guy and he has no deceit in his spirit? No. His deceit's on full display for us. Few, I don't have time to read it now, but look back at 2 Samuel. Read how he plots and plots to cover up his sin. He is full of deceit. How can it say that there's no deceit then? When we see the deceit, is David's forgiveness dependent on his performance or his character? Is ours? I sure hope not, because I know I screw up all the time. All of us would be doomed if that was the case. Also look at the last verse of our text, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, 
all you upright in heart. Was David righteous and upright in heart in and of himself? Are we, can we say that about ourselves? Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Romans. And let's look at it in a familiar passage. We're going to look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and see what the Apostle Paul says about people who are righteous. Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. Paul is speaking to this very question of something special about a person or a group of people that qualifies them for forgiveness. Is there something intrinsically special about people that makes it so God forgives them? This is the question that Paul's answering. And this is what he says, starting in verse 9. Talking about the difference between Jews and Gentiles. He says this, What then, are Jews better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. It's looking pretty grim for us. Psalm 32 talks about us being blessed, but it talks about the blessing being associated with those who have no deceit, who are righteous and upright in heart. And then Romans 3 tells us that's nobody. Paul brutally says, none is righteous. No, not one. So that how do we partake in the blessing, in the happiness and rejoicing described in Psalm 32? I think you probably already know where I'm going. But let's let Paul walk us through it. None of us are righteous. That is true. On our own merit, based on our works. But by faith, God counts us righteous. Flip over to the next chapter in Romans, Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Paul's talking about this. He's been explaining how, how is Abraham justified? It's not by works, but by faith. And let's see where he turns in Scripture to support this claim. Let's read it here together. Romans 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, this faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Those verses look familiar? I hope so. David is quoting Psalm, or Paul is quoting David from Psalm 32. In Paul's most ex, profound explanation of justification by faith apart from works, he takes us right back to this passage in Psalm 32 and highlights not only the forgiveness of our sins, but also how we are counted righteous by God. Not only does Christ make it possible for the forgiveness of our transgression, for the covering of our sins, for the discounting of our iniquity, and then leaves us to start from scratch building things up again on our own. No, he imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. This is the glory and the wonder of the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We are not simply forgiven of our sins, having them lifted away, and then having to rely on our own righteousness from that point. 
No. We are given the righteousness of Christ. And beloved, we can absolutely say of Christ that he has no deceit. He is altogether righteous and upright in heart. And we can be in Christ. So now that we are in Christ, not only does God not count our iniquity against us, but when he gazes upon us, he sees the perfect righteousness of his beloved son. One of my favorite songs that we sing at our church, uh, the common title for it is called The Solid Rock, or My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus' Blood and Righteousness. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. How blessed we are to be counted righteous. Not because of what we have done, but because of the perfect life of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So then what's next? We saw that we were forgiven, so then we were called to confess. Now we see that there were righteous in Christ, so now what? Now what's it going to tell us to do? We've been counted as righteous based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Should we continue in our sin? If we flip farther in Romans, Paul would say, by no means continue in your sin. But let's go back to Psalm 32 because that's where we're supposed to be and I got stuck in Romans. Okay, Psalm 32. Okay, picking up in verse... Now God speaking to his psalmist directly in verse 8 says this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Yes, our standing before God is based on Christ's righteousness. But we are still called to listen to God's instruction, and to follow him in the way we should go. We must obey. Not not to earn our salvation, but to glorify God in this life. If we insist on being stubborn like the mule, it's only going to make this life more painful and challenging for us. No, we will not lose our salvation if we are stubborn, But how much better is it for us to obey God and to stay near to him and to be in happy, blessed fellowship with him? We are called to obey. So we've seen our two points. We're blessed to be forgiven. We're called to confess. We're blessed to be counted righteous. We're called to obey. I want to conclude as we began discussing what it means to be blessed. I hope that you can see the true happiness that we have when we dwell on the fact that we are in Christ and we are forgiven and we are clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. That is truly being blessed. Not having a couple hundred million dollars or a private jet. The truth that can bring us happiness and joy no matter what changes around us. When I pray for my friends in Liberia, yes, I ask God that he would supply for their physical needs. But first and foremost, I earnestly pray 
that they and their families will be blessed by knowing that they are forgiven and righteous in Christ. So many other things in this life that we count on are fragile and fickle. We see this, think about the life of Job. He had everything going for him. And then it's gone. Family, fortune, health, it's all gone, just like that. And I think looking and thinking about what we consider to be blessed helps us see what some of the idols are in our life. In my, perf- in, in my life, one of the things that I've seen and that the Lord revealed to me as I was studying this was one of the things that I can make an idol is my own physical health. Scott mentioned that I was diagnosed with cancer two and a half years ago. There's So far, I went through chemo and we do regular tests and so far all those tests have come up clear, praise the Lord. But I still have blood tests every three months. And when I get those tests, for whatever reason it is, the needle going to my arm, taking out the blood, from that point on, I'm consumed by worrying about my health. I'm not feeling any sicker than I was the day before, but all of a sudden when there's just a test result hanging out there over my head, I feel like the cancer is going to come back. And I don't act happy or blessed. Actually, when I first prepared this message to preach at my church, that week I had a blood test. And I'd been going through this, preparing to preach it to my church, but I hadn't been preaching it to myself. I was talking about being blessed and being happy and was walking around through my life miserable because I was worried about a test result. Ultimately, that test result came back the Monday after I preached the sermon and it was clear and fine and I've had another test result since then and it's been fine. But if I base my blessedness, my happiness on my physical health or physical possessions or wealth or job or status or family or any of the good blessings God had given to us, that can be taken away in an instant. And then is our whole life shattered? If that's what we're putting our hope and our happiness in, yes, it is shattered. But not if we put our hope in Christ. And if we find our true blessedness and our true happiness in being forgiven and in being counted righteous, as David says here in Psalm 32, that is an unshakable foundation. I think by matter of coincidence, I actually shared this with you last time I was here. I've only preached here twice. I promise I don't quote this in every sermon. But that song that I talked about, The Solid Rock, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The original, song, the original title given to that by its author, Edward Mote, was the immutable basis of a sinner's hope. The immutable, the unchanging, the unshakable basis for a sinner's hope. I like that title. For us today, I think that we can rightly say that the immutable, unchanging basis for our true and deep happiness is the fact that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has forgiven us and has allowed us to be counted righteous. So as you go here from today, examine yourself. See what you're putting weight on that makes you feel happy or blessed. And look and see how fragile that is. And then turn to Christ and see how not fragile 
that is. He is unshakable. His forgiveness for you, his righteousness will never go away. Our performance goes up and down. We fail every day. We'll leave this auditorium and before 2 p.m. all of us will have sinned again. But we can turn back to Christ in confession and know that we are forgiven and come back into right, truly blessed happiness in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are so thankful for your word, for what it reminds us of. We, are, we so quickly forget. We so quickly put our hope, put our happiness on the things of this earth. The things that are good and that you have created and given to us, but ultimately are fragile and futile and are nothing in comparison to the perfection of your forgiveness and your righteousness for us in Christ. We pray now as we turn to communion and remember what Christ did for us on the cross, that you would fill each and every one of us who is in Christ with a true, deep blessedness and happiness, knowing that we are forgiven. And if there are those here who don't know you, we pray that your spirit would work in them, Use your word and the truth of who you are and what Christ has done on the cross to draw them to yourself, Lord. Because in this life, the only way to find blessedness and happiness that truly lasts and is unshakable, our only hope is in Christ alone. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.